You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. At the core of the Christian's confession, we encounter the claim, Jesus is Lord. It's a bold claim, perhaps even confrontational, and for the faithful, it's the beginning of a conversation, not the end of it. Does Lord mean the same thing when we're talking about God as it does when we talk about Jesus? Or does the distinction between the two require some kind of genuine difference? Daniel Kirk wants to draw our attention back to the text of the Synoptic Gospels and their place in the distinctive literary tradition of Second Temple Judaism. And when we pay attention to that context, the possibilities for interpretation get a lot more interesting than we might anticipate. His 2016 book, A Man Attested by God, explores some of those possibilities, and Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him to the show. Daniel, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Well, Daniel, just in case you didn't know, and you might have, I did have Richard Hayes on this show, both to talk about reading backwards and to discuss echoes of scripture in the Gospels. And honestly, the arguments of both books impressed me. So since your book is, among many other things, a reaction to Hayes' and to similar projects, take a moment to remind our listeners just in broad strokes what his project is so that we can set the table for your project. Sure. Uh, so you've, you've poisoned the pot with your listeners already to get them to think <laughs> that my, my thesis is wrong by having well, yeah. a... Richard Hayes on before me. Uh, Richard was my uh, was my dissertation director at Duke. So um, not only do I know his work, I, I know him uh, and appreciate um, him and, and his work very much. Uh, Richard's uh, project in in reading backwards in particular is uh, well for both projects. He is uh, offering a uh, a reading of the of the Synoptic Gospels and, and their deployment of Scripture in particular. And um, using those investigations to do what I would call a, a literary and theological investigation of, um, of what's, what the, the gospel writers are claiming about Jesus and his ministry. Um, reading backwards focused more specifically on the Christology of the, of the gospels, all four gospels. And Christology was also... Was also um, one of the four questions, four or five questions that he posed to each gospel in uh, his more recent Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels. So my book is entirely about Christology, uh, and uh, Hayes has been uh, delving in that as well. And, and his argument throughout is that the ways that the New Testament writers, that the gospel writers use Scripture, it indicates signals to uh, the readers that Jesus is being not only identified with the God of Israel, but that Jesus is being identified as the God of Israel. So he's building on Richard Balcom's divine identity Christology model. He's saying more—he's willing to admit more about it than Balcom is, uh, although I think Balcom is guilty of the same thing. In, in other words, uh, saying that uh, the claim that Jesus is, uh, shares the divine identity is one that is— uh, in a very real sense, um, at least Benetarian, if not proto-Trinitarian, and uh, so that you know later creedal confessions of Jesus um, sharing the you know being of one substance with the the Father uh, kind of have their anticipation there. Um, yeah, so that's his that's his work, and uh, I would uh, so again emphasize that I think his work is largely literary and theological, and that's where um, I think the thin end of the wedge is differentiating his project from mine. Okay, fair enough. And I'll also go ahead and make the promise right now, Daniel, that's the last time I will mention Richard Hayes today. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. Um, now, we can lead off with the central character type in your account of the synoptics, the idealized human figure. Uh, this is a concept and a literary, um, I mean, a figure, I guess I have to say, that runs all the way through your book, and I mean, we need to set the table with it before we can really get to the the readings of the text. So this kind of character is neither the wandering cynic sage of some of the quest for the historical Jesus models, nor is it the pre-existent deity, fully incarnate, fully God, fully man. It's something else. It's a third thing. So take a moment to say what an idealized human figure is, and how the figure Ha-Adam in Genesis begins, in a literary sense, this figure's career. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, uh, idealized uh, human figure is a category that um, I created to to catch uh, a whole bunch of um, people in early Jewish literature, both um, biblical literature and um, post-biblical Jewish literature as well. And uh, I see these as um, figures of the past, present, or idealized future who um, play a special role in representing humanity before God or, or God before humanity. Uh, oftentimes, these idealized uh, human figures um, in some way play the role of God on the earth. Uh, so uh, the creation of humanity in Genesis 1 is a place where we can we can see this um, manifesting itself in Scripture. Um, in Genesis 1, you, you have a, a picture, obviously, of God creating the world. Um, and yet, when, when God comes to create people, um, there is you know, a couple of special markers. Uh, God says, we're going to create uh, humanity in our own image and likeness. The image and likeness language is uh, the same language that's used in, uh, in ritual uh, texts um, talking about um, idols. Uh, for instance, when God is condemning the images of the nations, it's, it's that same language. Um, and, uh, and so this, um, uh, this part of the first thing that you see there is that humanity is created to be, and uh, in, in a very real sense, the the manifestation of God on earth in the same way that an idol in a temple would be the visible representation of the God in that, in that temple or in that place. Uh, so God creates humanity in, in God's image and likeness. That image and likeness language is also used a few chapters later to describe the, the relationship between Adam and his son, Seth. So I argue that um, part of uh, who humanity is created to be is the son and daughter of God, the the children of God. And then humanity is given a, a task, and that task is to rule the world. Uh, again, this is associated with being the, the image and likeness of God is, is inseparable from that function, um, because God is the one who rules over the world, God is, but God has been sort of doling out God's own uh, rule uh, throughout chapter 1 of, of Genesis, and, and it culminates here with giving humanity rule over the birds and the uh, and the animals. So uh, in Genesis 1, we see an idealized human figure, and what, what that means is that these people are the ones that you would look to, and, and when you do, you see um, essentially a visible representation of God on the earth. Um, so that's, that's a, the Genesis story of Adam, and it gets, uh, Adam gets picked up uh, later on in some other stories as well. And um, let me tell, let me give another Adam story. Uh, that's uh, it's in some post-biblical literature um, called the Life of Adam and Eve, and it's a it's a tale that is concerned about what happened uh, with Adam and Eve and what's going to happen in the future. Uh, it tells a story of um, Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden, and uh, they ask Eve, I think it is, asks Satan, "Why did you do it? Why did you tempt us?" And he's and so he tells his backstory, and his backstory is. That when um, God created Adam, God commanded all the angels of heaven to bow down and worship him because Adam was so um, beautifully reflective of the divine glory. And Satan refused, saying, no, I was created first. Adam should bow down to me. Um, there's a couple of great things about this story, one of which is it shows that some of our ideas, um, for instance, an idea that Balcom depends on, that the hierarchy of the cosmos goes God, then angels, then people, um, is not um, inherent in the biblical or Jewish narratives. And uh, it's very possible to read the, the Jewish and biblical narratives as depicting that humanity is actually higher than the angels. Um, because God creates humanity to rule, uh, whereas God has created um, the angels to serve. Another great thing about that story is it shows that it's quite possible for uh, a Jewish writer to imagine a human who so reflects the glory and likeness, the image and likeness of God, that worshiping, bowing down before that human is how one rightly honors the image of God in them. 
So you know the the whole aniconic you can't worship anyone but God idea. It's mostly true, um, but it also has some potential workarounds in in a very Jewish context. Uh, and I think that that's a great picture of the kind of thing that's happening as the early church talks about Jesus, uh, and specifically as it does so while it's developing uh, Adam Christologies in Paul or Son of Man Christologies in the Synoptic Gospels. Mm-hmm. And one of the fascinating things, Daniel, is that as you explore all of this, especially Second Temple literature, but the, but mm-hmm. the canonical texts as well, uh, is that you know you point out so well these places that we tend to read over simply because they're so familiar, where that boundary line between worshiping the creator of heavens and earth and paying some kind of obeisance to a rightful king or a prophet or some other son of man figure that we'll talk about later is a right act, even as the distinction between creator and creation remains. Uh, So I want to add to that pot uh, simply because, you know, Adam, sometimes you can think of him as sort of a primordial, you know, origin story. Mm-hmm. But Moses, I mean, he, he comes into things in the middle of the story, and yet he's also an idealized human figure. So in what ways does Moses step into Yahweh's role in Exodus and Numbers? Yeah, um, Moses is a, is a terrific case study, both for who Moses is in Scripture itself and also who Moses how Moses is depicted in later Jewish material. Uh, uh, one place to go uh, for the Moses being identified with God is the the burning bush story. And when God sends um, Moses or tell Moses that he's going to go to Pharaoh, um, you know, what he says to, to Moses is, I am going to make you God to Pharaoh. Uh, so you know, Moses is playing the role of Israel's God in this, uh, in that encounter. Uh, and, uh, you know, when, when Moses protests and says, no, don't send me, I stutter, I can't talk. He says, fine. Um, I'm going to send your brother Aaron with you and he's going to be your prophet and you're going to be God to him and put the words in his mouth. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Moses plays the role of God um, as God who gives words to the prophet and God who acts uh, and speaks to this other foreign king who himself was thought to be an embodiment of the God. So there's kind of a, a tit for tat with the Egyptian royal theology in a sense. Um, then as you read through the, the, the plagues on the people and the, the Exodus narrative, there's this um, uh, synergistic uh, depiction of the action, activity of God and the activity of Moses, where Moses is the one who acts, um, but then God is the one who acts as well. Um, so, you know, Moses has to strike this sea and and turns it's the sea to blood, but then God's the one who does it. Um, most uh, most strikingly, though, is that in the dividing of the Red Sea, where God seems to almost need Moses to to raise his staff. He he commands Moses raise your staff and divide the sea, and so Moses raises a staff, and then God divides the sea. And the the result that we're told is that the people put their faith in God and in God's servant Moses. So Moses and God are in a very real sense inseparable in this story. Uh, and then, you know, you can go to the stories of um, people rebelling against Moses and God taking that as rebellion against God as well um, to, to see that just all of the, the rippling ways in which um, as an idealized human figure, Moses very much plays the role of Yahweh on the earth. Yeah. And, and once again, those of us, in the audience, and you know, my audience tends to be a Bible reading audience. We know these stories and we've paid attention to these details even. But one thing this book does well is sort of lay them down in a systematic fashion just to establish right at the outset that what a human character does doesn't always stay within the realm of the ordinary. And what it takes to be called God in this story, it, it, it's a pretty tightly bounded set of criteria. So, I mean, what are those criteria to actually call a character God in a biblical story? Because you lay them down pretty nicely. Um, oh, I, I, I lay out some criteria, huh? Um, <laughs> where did I do that? Uh, well, I mean, um, 
I, I don't remember my I don't remember my list. Um, I I think that uh, some of the criteria. I mean, in this case, um, it, you, Moses is just told that he is going to to play the role that, that you know, God tells him. I'm going to make you God, um, and. I mean, so, you know, part of the question that I want to ask is, what does that mean? And, and why do we think that that's not okay? Um, you know, I, I do, I spend about 110, 120 pages, maybe more on this Judaism thing, because I think the most pressing question for, as we're wrestling with the identity of Jesus is, what is possible for a Jewish person to say about another human without necessarily saying that, they are God in God's self, right? I mean, there's still mm-hmm. a distinction in the characters between Yahweh and Moses in Exodus, uh, and yet Moses plays the part of God. Um, so you know, uh, it may be that our theology is creating, it, it's not creating the separation between the creator and the creature, but it may be creating um, an impermeability between those two that is more firm and pervasive than the textual evidence can actually withstand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what I had in mind is that, I mean, you basically said that when it comes to idealized human figures, they do everything that God does except for create the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if a right. figure created the world, that's God. Otherwise, it could be either one. Right, and and you may even get an idealized human figure that is depicted as recreating the world or participating in that creation in some way. Um, like there is there, um, uh, uh, Crispin Fletcher Louie has done some really interesting work on, um, the high priest, uh, Simon in, in Sirach and how, Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, um, the ceremony that is depicted that he's supposed to undergo, uh, as the high priest is a reenactment of the creation narrative with the high priest playing the role of God. So, you know, it's not a, a claim that the human himself actually was there to help create the world, but it's nonetheless a depiction of God sharing that creative power itself with an idealized human figure. Right, but you do say that the Gospel of John's Logos Christology signals a definite and intelligible break because at that yep. point the one who is made flesh is also the one who created all things yes yes and and also that and that logos christology is a provides a clear indication of pre-existence mm-hmm. in a way that uh, i would say the synoptic gospels don't all right very good now listeners before we get into too many specific biblical texts although we've already kind of gone there I want to let you know that we're chatting our way today through a 600-page brick of a book, and (laughs) Dr. Kirk is marvelously thorough, enough to wear down even a reader like me. So go and get this book, because there is a treasure trove here, and make sure you leave yourself time to read. I do that as an apology, Daniel, because we're going to jump all the way from Moses to the Gospel of Mark here. Um, <laughs> hey, hey, can I do? I just want to say one thing before we do that. And, you know, we started off this conversation with me summarizing um, Richard Hayes's work. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I also haven't figured out how to get Messenger not to beep at me when I'm on when I tell it to be quiet. Um, <laughs> it keeps beeping. Um, but the um, uh, the I would say that the reason why. Richard Hayes and I differ in how we read the Gospels. Mm-hmm. It really has to do with the fact that um, Richard hasn't studied the the Jewish material, and he he dug into um, Richard Balcom's work and decided to build on that. Um, but he really hasn't engaged uh, with alternative like Jewish frameworks, and and this is why I think that the wrestling with the Jewish stuff is critical because. There's only one way to know what a Jewish writer meant, might have meant, you know, what the realms of possibility were open to them and where they're innovating, and that is to see what other Jewish authors had done. And so that's really at the heart of my argument is that this sort of application of 
Old Testament texts to heroes, like that you see in a couple places. Ya- you know, application of Yahweh texts to Melchizedek in mm-hmm. Qumran, for instance, or to the teacher of righteousness in Qumran. Like that kind of move, while not common, is a move that was open to other early Jewish people who we don't read and say, oh, look, they're saying that someone else is God in a proto-Benetarian sort of way. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I do think that the most important thing that I've done is to provide this this Judaism conversation to just to ask, you know, this, this big question uh, you know, are we sure that we really know so well um, what uh, what it would mean for a Jewish person to depict um, a hero in the way that Jesus is depicted in these Gospels? Right, right. And we're going to discuss, I mean, a number of places in the Gospels where when Jesus does these things, according to your argument, and I think it's a good argument, uh, he is certainly rising above, but he's still staying in the neighborhood of what a non-divine but messianic figure in a second temple imagination would do is that a fair exactly. enough summary yeah right. that is i also want to note for our listeners that there has been another mention but it wasn't me it was daniel so uh <laughs> 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 let's go to mark you talk very nicely in mark about three parallel episodes baptism transfiguration crucifixion Talk to us about what it means to read Jesus as an idealized human figure in that trio of episodes. Yeah. Um, well, the uh, I hold them together um, because uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, those are the only three places in Mark's gospel where someone other than uh, a demon uh, re- you know, identifies Jesus as son of God. Mm-hmm. Um the baptism and the transfiguration are also the only two places where God acts as a character in the story. Um, so they're the, the only two divine appearances um, in in the gospel. And uh, there are between the baptism and the crucifixion, there are also a number of other parallels. Not only the um, Son of God piece, uh, there is a mentioning of the Spirit and Jesus um expiring or giving up his spirit. There's mention of Elijah um, and, and some other things. So um, and so, so there's some good literary reasons for holding these three passages together. Um, when Jesus is baptized, the voice from heaven, uh, you know, the, the dove comes down into him and uh, the, the voice from heaven says, you are my son uh, whom I love. Uh, with you, I'm well pleased. One of the the arguments that I make is that the Son of God Christology in the Synoptic Gospels is a Messiah Christology. It's not a divine Christology. In the Old Testament, uh, when when kings uh, became when the, the king of Judah became king, when the Davidic king became king, uh, there is a, a theology of uh, adoption or divine begetting. So you have, for instance, Psalm 2, uh, where the king says, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He has said to me, you are my son. This day I've begotten you. That's an enthronement psalm. When the king of Israel became king, he became son of God. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, when David, when God makes a promise to David of uh, an eternal uh, lineage, he says, God says to David, your son will be a son to me and I will be a father to him. So to be king of Israel is to be son of God. You know, you should be hearing here echoes of what I said in Genesis 1, that God created people to rule the world and to be son of God. Mm-hmm. So in that line of the Davidic um, theology, there's you know, echoes of Adam theology, uh, but it's a theology of the, the king ruling the world on God's behalf. So uh, I'm, I'm arguing that, at the, that the baptism scene is itself Jesus anointing to be Messiah— and when God says, you are my son, that is the moment of divine anointing of Jesus to be the Messiah. So it's not a disclosure of something that was true about Jesus all along. It is the investiture of Jesus into this office of king slash son of God. This um, is accompanied by the reception of the Spirit. And again, go back to David when he's anointed by Samuel in 1 Samuel 16. You know, the Spirit comes upon David from that moment on. And the same thing had happened when Samuel anointed Saul. And similar mm-hmm. things happened when, um, when judges were empowered to deliver. Uh, so you, in the ideal kingship, 
the king is empowered by God's spirit to do the work that God has done for him. So whereas uh, I think a um, a Trinitarian uh, sort of Christian reading of that text is often in terms of a disclosure of Father, Son, and Spirit— um, an idealized human reading of the text is this is the anointing of Jesus um, by God the Father uh, for um, for his work as Messiah. Um, moreover, in, uh, in that phrase, um, you are my son whom I love, uh, there's probably an echo of Genesis 22, the Isaac story, where God says, mm-hmm. take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and offer him to me on the mountain I will show you. Um, what happens with that is that then you have this added layer of identification such that Jesus as Messiah is going to fulfill his ministry by um, by going to death on the cross, by not being spared, but by being offered up, um, as Paul echoes that uh, that passage in, in Romans. So um, my argument about the baptism scene is that it's um, it's. Signaling it's the anointing of Jesus for his messianic task, specifically the upside down messianic task of uh, coming into his kingdom by through his death on the cross. Um, later in Mark's gospel, he's going to uh, when James and John has to sit at his left and right hand. You know, he says, "Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with?" Um, that's an indication that baptism is an image and a metaphor for Jesus' death uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Now. Uh, what happens elsewhere in the book is that you, the second time God appears, he says almost the same thing, except you know, this is my son whom I love. Uh, rather than saying, in you I'm well pleased, he's, God is talking to the disciples, and he says, listen to them. Listen to him. Yeah, there Sorry. you go. <laughs> listen to him. Uh, yeah, Jesus, don't listen to them. They don't have any idea what they're talking about. <laughs> Why does God do this? Well, because in the immediately preceding scene, what had happened was Jesus had said, who am I? And Peter says, you're the Christ, right? So, yes, you're the anointed king. And then Jesus says, "Okay, shut up. Now, listen, I'm going to have to the son of man is going to have to be rejected, suffer and die and rise on the third day. And Peter rejects that and rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, you know, if anyone wants to come after me, you have to take up your cross and follow. So what had happened there is that Peter had gotten the title right, Messiah, Christ. As readers, we know that Christ is the right title for Jesus. But he had refused to allow Jesus to redefine that title um, in light of that baptismal fire, that, that death on the cross that's looming ahead of him. And so when the divine voice shows up again, he says, yes, he is my son, i.e. he is the Messiah. Now listen to him, Um, because, in other words, Jesus knows what his ministry holds and that he is, in fact, going to the cross. So both times that God appears on the scene, it's to confirm, affirm Jesus' messianic identity and the particular vocation of going to death on the cross, so that when the third time that you know, someone other than a demon um, identifies Jesus as son of God, it's the centurion after Jesus dies. And what you have as the reader is Jesus hanging there with a sign over his head that says the king of the Jews. Mm-hmm. In other words, here is the Messiah. And it's in his death when the centurion saw how he died um, he said, surely this man was son of, a son of God. Um, so that, that kingship and the death are drawn together again, and the whole story coheres as a story about Jesus as a Messiah, who, yes, has authority from God, but ultimately is going to come into his kingship by going to death on a cross. So um, that is like the the first time we see Jesus is the baptism. The last time we see Jesus is the crucifixion. The transfiguration is almost in the dead center, the the confession transfiguration complex. Um, And so part of my argument is, yes, this is Mark's Son of God Christology. It's a messianic Christology and a suffering Messiah Christology. It also is the framework for the whole narrative. So if you want to claim some sort of more divine Christology or something, I think you're going to have a really hard time doing it precisely because Mark has bookended his whole messianic story with the, um, this depiction of Jesus as 
um, suffering Christ uh, at the heart of his identity as given by God. Mm-hmm. Now, if if that's the Son of God side, then you've also got the Son of Man side. And, and I'll have to admit, I mean, this is one of those figures, I mean, when I was a young undergraduate minoring in Bible, uh, this is what fascinated me the most about what I was learning, that you have Daniel 7's One Like a Son of Man, uh-huh. you've got the Son of Man that emerges in the synoptics, and this is a figure who is not identical with the King of Israel the way the Son of God is. So, I mean, I had right. to kind of reverse my expectations and, you know, right. treat Son of God as a, in some ways, a more human title than Son of Man because you've got this strange vision in Daniel. But what is it about Son of Man that gets Jesus' enemies to charge him with blasphemy? Yeah, um... So, I mean, what you just said about Son of God being a more human title than Son of Man, uh, Daniel Boyarin wrote a book where he basically made that argument that, oh, well. <laughs> um, uh, you know, that Daniel 7 is, you know, this divine figure. Um, so, you know, my understanding of Daniel 7, first of all, it's a highly visionary text, and mm-hmm. that fig- the, the vision that Daniel sees is interpreted, and the the vision that he sees of the Son of Man receiving you know, authority, dominion, and power is uh, interpreted as God giving authority, dominion, and power to the holy ones or the saints of the Most High. Mm-hmm. So you know, the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is representative of a corporate entity. Um, I think that that corporate entity is, is, is Israel, um, the people of God, um, as the holy ones uh, who suffered persecution under Antiochus, the fourth Epiphanes. Um, John Collins uh, argues that the the holy ones uh, are representative of uh, that that that's that means the angels of God who kind of rule in the heavenly places. Um, either um, so, you know, my reading of that is that it's a it's a corporate it, it's a it's a depiction of a corporate people, the people of God, um, and um, so. Uh, yeah, I, I think that reading it like that actually helps explain a few things. For instance, um, every time Jesus predicts his death and resurrection, he uses Son of Man as his uh, as his the title that he uses. The Son of Man is going to have to be rejected, suffered, and die. And he says, how is it written that the Son of Man must be rejected and rise again from the dead? Well, the only place in the Old Testament that talks about resurrection is actually the book of Daniel. And it seems to me that Mark is weaving, or this Jesus tradition is weaving together Daniel 7, where the saints are persecuted and then exalted by God, with Daniel Daniel 12, in which some of those who endure the suffering and persecution are raised and shine like the stars in the heavens. So, you know, I, I think that the idea that the Son of Man is um, the, the people who are rejected, suffer, uh, and die, and then rise again, uh, I think that reading of Daniel fits like a glove how Jesus deploys it. The, you know, Jesus is, is accused of blasphemy twice. Um, it's, he's accused of blasphemy the first time and the last time he uses the Son of Man title for himself. Once when he heals the paralytic and they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? The second time is when, um, when he's at his trial. Um, so when he, said, when, he, when he forgives the sins of the paralytic, the, the scribes say, hey, he blasphemes. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I think we have to be really careful about what we do with that question because these are the bad guys, right? For the reader of the text, these are not the people who know and understand who Jesus is. So we need to be really careful and hesitant about whether we're going to let them set the parameters for what a title that Jesus takes can mean. Right. And within their own story, they're not being honest either because they know full well you can go to the temple and get your sins forgiven. Right. Right. So God can forgive sins and God has given some ways that that can be done. Right. Right. Um, And the other thing to be aware of is that in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is not the first um, human character to show up on the scene offering forgiveness of sins. Um, John the Baptist had done that out in the wilderness with his baptism. Um, So uh, maybe Jesus is claiming a more direct authority than John's mediated authority. um, But you know, let's not get ahead of ourselves that anytime we see somebody offering forgiveness that they're making a claim to be God. Um, and so what Jesus says is, um, 
you know, he asked the question, which is harder to forgive sins or say, you know, get up, take your mat and go home. Um, and, and then he says, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You know, I say to you, rise, take up your mat and go home. He says the son of man has authority upon the earth. Um, so first of all, he doesn't say, you know, I'm God upon the earth. Um, he says the son of man has authority upon the earth. He doesn't at that point claim authority in heaven either. Um, and uh, Morna Hooker in her book on the son of man and Mark has argued that Jesus is here echoing the realm of authority over that God gave to Adam in Genesis 1, that he would have authority of Pete's gaze upon the earth over all you know, these creatures of the field and the like. So I think there's actually a good argument to be made that Jesus is claiming to be to have this authority because he is the human one, which is kind of my preferred you know, at conclusion, you know, the conclusion of my study of Son of Man, that's how I would want to translate it. He's saying, I am the human one, um, the, the human being who embodies in himself everything that God wants humanity to be. Um, a couple of reasons why um, I think that that works. One of them is in Matthew's telling of this story, the people glorify God who had given such authority to people or among people, choice anthropois. Uh, so they're celebrating the fact that that authority is present in and among and with people. So they're picking up on that, you know, son of man thing uh, and realizing that it's talking about the humanness. Um, this is uh, son of man kind of parallels the, the unfolding of the gospel and that um, there are two son of man sayings in the first half of Mark. The second one also claims authority. Uh, it's, the, it's the Sabbath one where Jesus says, um, the Sabbath was made for humanity, not humanity for the Sabbath. Therefore, the human one has authority over the Sabbath. That saying only works if Jesus is claiming to have authority as part of the body of humanity um, for whom it was made. Um, right? That's So uh, yeah, I think that Jesus is making that claim. So why does he get accused of blasphemy? Well, if you're claiming this authority that properly belongs to God alone— You've got one of two things. Either you're usurping the authority of God or God has given it to you. Uh, and, you know, what Jesus says in, in his trial, you know, the question is, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? So, you know, the question is, are you the Messiah, the son of God? And Jesus says, I am. And you're going to see the son of man seated at the right hand of power, um, seated at the right hand uh, of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Um, so, and then he's charged with blasphemy. So what Jesus has said is, yes, I'm the Messiah and I'm going to rule at God's right hand. And what they're saying is this is a blasphemous usurpation of God's throne, God's authority, God's power. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, the question, the question of whether Jesus blasphemes or not, it's, it's either, you know, on the high Christology argument, either Jesus claimed to be God and they disagree with him and accuse him of blasphemy or he claimed, on my argument, he claimed divine authority, divine prerogative, which he's not guilty of if God, in fact, gave that authority to him. Let, let me suggest something else, and you can tell me if I'm on track or off track here. It might also be that he has blasphemed, which has connotations of insult, insofar as you know he's setting himself up as the son of man who comes to bring divine justice to the world, and therefore setting those temple authorities in the place of the wicked nations who are opposing the true people of God. I mean, is that, is that an angle on it as well? Um, it, it could be. I think you would need to—that um, uh, might be sort of um, uh, like a—I I think it, if you put together some things from um, Mark 13, where the Son of Man comes at the end of the, the temple destruction, Jerusalem destruction, mm -hmm. pericope— uh, with this, uh, I think you could build that perhaps for the reader of Mark. I think it's a little bit hard to make the that that seems a little involved for what the the high priest is thinking on my initial hearing. Mm -hmm. But okay. uh, but maybe if I if I think about it a little bit more, maybe I'll maybe I'll come around. All right, that's fair enough. And, <laughs> and, I, and I do, do want to pause here just to note that again, uh, what this book is doing is basically pushing backwards. 
uh, and really to a place where, you know, earlier scholarship tended to put it, the time and the place where identification of Jesus and God happened. So in other words, this community that Daniel's talking about that's hearing this gospel for the first time does indeed worship as God's unique saving agent on earth, but hasn't yet reached the place where they're calling him God in the same way that the creator of heaven and earth is God. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I, I would say that that these at least offer us the possibility that um, up through the 70s and you know late 60s and into the 70s, there are you know, communities that are telling Jesus stories that do so without um, a, any sort of conscious reflection of pre-existence uh, or ontological divinity of Jesus. Okay. Um, but uh, even as I said that, but they still believe that Jesus was raised from the dead and is Lord because he is literally enthroned at God's right hand. Mm-hmm. You're right. So it's, I mean, there are certain things that I think people and maybe in a more popular level, associate with divinity, that I'm saying that this is all part of the the awesome miracle working enthroned, you know, son of godness, you know, uh, messiahship of Jesus. So if I can misappropriate and misuse a, uh, a common evangelical trope, what you're asking to do is not to put humanity in a box. Exactly. Exactly. You know, okay, so... You this can is use that great... if you want to, by the way. Yeah, don't don't put humanity in a box, people. That's great. Um, <laughs> one of the I, I think that actually our inability to recognize how awesome humanity is is one of the reasons why we have a hard time with this reading, mm-hmm. right? We use phrases like you know I'm only human, and and what that means is you know I'm weak, I'm you know I've, I'm finite, what have you. And a part of what I want to recover is the fact that humanity in the like it created in the image of God, like that is an awesome, powerful kind of anthropology that needs to be recovered. Part of what I want to argue is that God didn't give up on humanity as awesome as part of God's plan for the world. And you know, part of what I want to create space for is for people to recognize that what God is saving us for is not, and what Jesus comes to save us for isn't to save us from our humanity. He comes to save us for our humanity. That's why he yeah, the Jesus who preaches and heals and exercises causes the, calls disciples and has them preach and heal and exercise. And when Jesus sees 5,000 people who need food, he says to the disciples, you feed them. And they're like, we can't. And Jesus, Jesus actually makes his disciples do it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he gives them the bread and they give it to the people. So G- this is about these are stories about God redeeming humanity. God hasn't given up on humanity, um, and you know, what Paul will call an Adam Christology. Uh, this is like God, uh, the first of what humanity is supposed to be in the new creation that God is bringing about. So, yeah, this is all about don't put humanity in a box. And if all we can say about Jesus' humanity is, well— our humanity is bad, so Jesus had to suck like us so he could die, then I think we've missed the whole point of the incarnation. Um, the incarnation wasn't to put the final nail in the coffin of our humanity. It was to raise our humanity from the dead uh, and to, to recreate it. Um, and that's, that's what God's up to with us, and that's that's who we see Jesus being on the pages of the Gospels. Mm-hmm. Now, Daniel, you got I'm, me preaching. You got me preaching. Right. <laughs> now, I am going to push back on you a little bit because, if I'm honest, oh, you're going to push back on a sermon. <laughs> I'm about to. If I'm honest, when I read or hear narratives of Jesus commanding storms to cease, it's hard for me not to Did go that? Trinitarian immediately. And yeah. when you ask me to do that in this book. I wasn't sure what the payoff would be. So what is good about reading Jesus, the exorcist and the storm commander and the healer as an idealized human figure? Um, right. Well, let me first start by saying that I think that there's some good, there's some really good old Testament precedent for Mm -hmm. idealized human figures, um, being able to control the waters. Uh, our friend, um, Moses, uh, participating in the dividing of the Red Sea, um, his protege Joshua, uh, dividing the waters of the Jordan so that the people put their faith in Joshua like they had put it in Moses. 
um, you've got Elisha causing the uh, the axe head to float. Um, you've got um, you know, freshening um, uh, waters that had, had turned bitter. Um, but perhaps most importantly, uh, there is Psalm 89. Psalm 89 is a, uh, a messianic psalm in the, the full sense of the word. It's a psalm that, um, that, first of all, celebrates God as king, then celebrates the fact that God made David king, and then turns to say, so since you made David king, why isn't David king anymore? Um, and you calling on God to restore the Davidic line. Now, in the middle part of that psalm, uh, there is this part where uh, God is the speaker, and he says, he will cry out to me, my God, my Father, and the rock of my salvation. So there's that um, king of Israel as son of God idea. And then uh, he goes on to say, I will set his hand upon the, the seas and his right hand upon the waters. Uh, so you know, the idea being that God's sovereignty over the whole world will be given into the hands of his, uh, into the hand of his king, into the hand of his son. So mm-hmm. when you see Jesus coming along and in this place where he's been identified as son of God and one who does call on God as my father, um, I, you know, I think that there is really great place for that to fit in terms of a messianic expectations, um, in, in the Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, you know, obviously, you know, I don't know if it's obvious, but I've never walked on water uh, or or, st- or um, stopped the sea. Um, but, you know, maybe it is a picture of the holistic authority that God intends humanity to have over the world. Um, if not, um, to, if, you know, even if we lack perhaps the authority to, um, to stop seas, um, maybe it should be a signal that when God's people are are faithfully stewarding our rule of the earth, that the water will be where it needs to be for pe- for crops to grow and people to be able to drink, uh, and that food will be able to grow where it needs to grow for uh, the people of the earth to be able to be fed. Uh, maybe there is uh, a sense of you know, what we would call stewardship over the environment and um, care for our for the waters and the and the fields that is part of what it's supposed to look like for us to, um, to, you know, to be God's faithful people on the earth. Um, maybe that feels a little bit weak. Um, but actually, as I look around at the, what power looks like in Washington right now, um, you know, it's, it's not a given at all that, uh, people with power, uh, or that it's, you know, that it's weakness, uh, that it's a, a weak reading to think that we would leverage the earth's resources, um, and control them and, in those kinds of ways or, you know, so use them for our own usage and, um, in ways that would be life-giving for humanity. So, uh, you know, there's some, I think there are some ways to think about quote unquote application. If you want to go there and think about what it means to be exalted and glorified humanity. Um, there's probably some ways where I'd say, yeah, maybe when we have our resurrected body, we'll be able to do cooler things than, than we can do right now. Um, but ultimately, you know, my, my first concern in the book is, to give a good reading of the Jesus story, the actual uh, stories that um, that we have. Mm-hmm. And of course, I mean, as we've mentioned over and over, I mean, this book uh, concerns itself with the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Mark, Matthew, and Luke, uh, and really doesn't go to John. And I, th- I think that's intentional. I think it would have been 1,100 pages if you had. Um, but I do want to ask, I mean, since this is a book about the Synoptics, and since in John you do indicate a couple places, you know, something genuinely new happens there in Christology. Mm-hmm. Be theological here for me a moment. I mean, <clears throat> do you characterize that move as an unfortunate deviation or an inspired innovation or a simple differentiation or some other kind of change? Ooh, I hadn't thought about it in quite those terms. Um yeah, I guess I would choose inspired innovation. Okay, say um, more. And and development. Uh, you know, I, like I like you've said, I think it is a genuine development and a genuine addition to the Christologies that we have on offer in uh, in the New Testament. I think it's I think it's a minority voice in the New Testament that somehow 
uh, still managed to, to win the day. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's, you know, somebody asked me, you know, do I think that there's really any, anything good or useful about divine Christology? And I think that there's one, there's one thing that divine Christology and especially later Trinitarian ways of working out the divinity of Jesus um, is really helpful that it is only a theological innovation and is not found anywhere in the New Testament. And that is this, the concern that the crucifixion is divine child abuse or, you know, a father sacrificing his son uh, for the sake of other people, um, like that's that's really disturbing. Actually, when you, when you stop to think about it, it's an act of love, but it's a it's a really gruesome. You have to pick it as an act of love, but it's also a kind of a really gruesome act of love. Um, but you know, to be able to say that the cross isn't God giving another for the sake of us, but is um, a self giving act of God, that changes the dynamic completely, uh, and it becomes an act of self-sacrifice, not only on the part of Jesus, as you know, he says in John and you know, elsewhere, I'm, you know, I'm laying down my own life, um, mm-hmm. but it becomes a self-sacrifice on the part of God in God's self. Mm-hmm. And I think that, to, to be able to say that about the cross, is, I think that's a really important thing theologically, maybe especially uh, at this particular point in history. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's interesting. I mean, the move that you just made, I mean, is, is very similar. It resonates with what uh, Jurgen Moltmann does in Crucified God in saying that, you know, the father forsakes fatherhood on the cross because with a son that is dying, mm-hmm. you know, there is a, a God forsakenness even in the person of God at that point. And I, I probably just mangled that phrase and Trip Fuller somewhere, if he's listening to this, is slapping his head. But... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, you know, deep in your in, in your book, I mean, 450 pages in. <laughs> Where no one, would, no one would see it. <laughs> you have this line, and I'll, I'll admit this one took me back 450 pages in, and I'll quote it here. Quote, the point of these depictions and of my argument about them is not to deny divinity to Jesus, but to demonstrate the height to which humanity obtains in its idealized embodiment, close quote. Now, we've talked about the height to which humanity obtains. We're going to return to it here in just a moment. But that first part, I have to admit that there are passages of this book that do strike me as that either-or decision. If Jesus is human, then Jesus is not divine. And in fact, I mean, there's passages where I thought that that was the upshot of your project overall. So, I mean, this confuses me. So, I mean, in what does it mean to say the synoptic gospels don't give us a divine Jesus, but Jesus is still divine or Jesus uh, is not, not divine, I guess, to, to keep your language intact. <laughs> well, I, uh, maybe I was making a theological point or, or something uh, at this point, which uh-huh. was, uh, you know, I don't, um, and I don't know exactly the, where that came in the flow. Um, uh-huh. uh, but I do think that being able to explain the passages, uh, from the perspective of what's capable of an what what you could say about an idealized human, I think for the most, if you can do that with every passage, then I think mm-hmm. that you're on shaky ground for claiming that it's a both and of God and human. Um, so yeah, I am denying that. I am denying that in the literary compositions of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that mm-hmm. Jesus is being depicted as divine. Okay, uh, I. And I do argue that that's different from Jesus, who's being who's preexistent, uh, and yet it, you know is also human in John. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I do think that you could come back with your Christian both and conviction and and reread it uh, as you know talking about a God man, as of course people have been doing for you know much of the last seventeen eighteen hundred years. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when you're making an argument about what the author of the, the book meant uh, or what the audience was likely to hear, you know, part of what I'm trying to do is to take seriously the fact that people say, well, if you're saying this, then clearly you're showing that Jesus is God. And I'm saying, no, um, because, look, it could mean human. Okay, well, then what about that? You know, so I'm trying to go through as much as I can all of those passages. And listeners, and, he goes through a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and say, no, there's this other... Avail- there's this other space available in early Judaism about what this could mean. 
you know, and if at the end of the day you want to go, yeah, but still, then, you know, that's fine. And we do that. We're human. Um, but uh, I, I hope that at least what I've done is for people who don't agree with my thesis uh, about what that he's being depicted as human and not divine, I at least hope that when you read these stories of Jesus, you'll recognize that when he's shown doing awesome things, mm-hmm. maybe you'll remember with the best of the Christian tradition that he does these things uh, as God-man without separation or division. So he's not doing it because he's God, full stop. It's the God-man who's doing it. And it's as much the human Jesus who's doing it as it is kind of the pre-existent God that's, you know, shining through uh, at that particular moment. Very good. Uh, real quick, I just want to note that when you uh, attributed bad readings to some people, you uh, just put humanity in a box. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I want to kind of head towards the door here and think in terms of homiletics. And I want to mention at this point that uh, Daniel does host a biblical studies homiletics podcast called the Lectio Cast. Yes? Yes. On the Homebrew Christianity Network. It's a really good podcast. Listeners, you ought to go check it out. I want you to talk a little bit about the homiletic payoff. If we learn to read Jesus as this idealized human figure, what kinds of sermon payoff comes for someone who can read with this discipline of reading? Uh, I think the most important thing is that it closes the gap between Jesus and us, which is a scary thing. But um, the idea that what you're seeing here is not a whole bunch of crazy stuff that Jesus can do just because it's God, but this is a vision of what God is making humanity into. I think I've given exegetical grounds for making the theological claim that the life of Jesus is the life that God hopes to see embodied in God's followers. Uh, I think it gives ground to that kingdom of God theology, which says, you know, the kingdom of God that Jesus is shown as depicting in the Bible is the same kingdom of God that God hopes that we'll be involved in bringing to bear uh, in the things that we say and do. Um, so I, I think that one of the, the greatest payoffs is drawing us closer to the expectations and hopes of the, um, uh, of the Gospels, uh, that that we would be the people who act like this and thereby show that the reign of God has come near, um, and it's come near because now the king is enthroned at God's right hand, and this is what the world looks like when God's king is, is fully in charge. So whether that's um, healed bodies or healed relationships or um, overturned power structures or the wrong people being celebrated as the family of God, uh, that's that's our work because it was Jesus' work, uh, and Jesus did that as the man uh, and is making us into those people as well. Very good. Well, Daniel, I've been at the wheel and asking the questions for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What about Jesus, idealized human figures, Duke Divinity School, or whatever else do you want our <laughs> readers thinking about as we head out the door? Um. You know, I actually was going to ask you about, you know, what what the, the humanism part is in, in your uh, podcast title. I wish we'd gotten a chance to talk about that a little bit. Oh, but, that's all right. Do you want me to say briefly? Yeah, say, say it briefly. Uh, three things, really. One, uh, it is the old Ciceronian and later on Erasmian idea that human nature is by nature potential so that we can become something other than we are as human beings, and that's God's particular gift to humanity number two we really dig on erasmus of rotterdam and number three uh it's just really fun to try to steal that word from the atheists and watch them twitch (laughs) nice i I like it um as um the grandson of immigrants from rotterdam i'm I'm happy to to hear erasmus of rotterdam being being celebrated very good Um, you know well I, i just i i do think that that folks who care about humanity and human human potential like to for us to see Jesus as like us in his humanity and to really come to grips with that i think that's critical for the project of hum, of christians participating in the humanist project which i think is critical and it's what um 
it's a lot of what I hope will happen as Christians faithfully read and engage this text. And uh, I think seeing Jesus as the human one is has to be a cornerstone of that, uh, and 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 a way into that goal of our human transformation um, that you know I think all of us should share in who are committed to the Christian project, even if you know we're we're skittish, even if some might be skittish of that humanist label or have never heard it. All right, Daniel Kirk, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Listeners, thank you for downloading and listening in. The Christian Humanist, Christian Humanist Profiles is a part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I am Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord. <laughs>